with In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. For most of history, coronavirus knowledge was limited to a couple of types that caused little more than the common cold. For the past couple of years, though, the world has been dealing with a much different iteration. Epidemiologist and writer Dan Werb is out with a new book, The Invisible Siege, The Rise of Coronaviruses and the Search for a Cure. I recently talked with him about the book and the history of coronaviruses. One of the key issues here is that this is a family of viruses, and until 2002, when SARS-1 emerged, which is sort of a, one of the ancestors of the SARS-2 virus that caused COVID-19, until then, there was no sense at all that coronaviruses could be dangerous for human beings. There were two coronaviruses at the time that caused common colds. They seemed to have been around forever, uh, and there was no cause for alarm. And in 2002, everything changed. There was a, mm -hmm. as I said, SARS-1 emerged. It killed 10% of the people that it infected. And for people who were studying coronaviruses at the time, and honestly, you know, we're talking about around 60 people around the world, so a very small backwater discipline, this was a sudden shock and a sudden paradigm shift in how we understood uh, this family of, of viruses. You'd mentioned that SARS-1 kind of led to SARS-2. SARS-2, as I understand, is kind of the, oh, this part of the genesis of COVID. Do we know exactly how the COVID variant formed or transformed into what we're seeing and now the subsequent variants uh, in addition? Yeah, well, we know that um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, uh, you know, and all the illness associated with this pandemic, is related to a bunch of um, coronaviruses that are found in bats. What we still don't know is exactly how it emerged. And of course, this is a huge area of controversy. If you go to the darker parts of <laughs> Twitter and the internet, sure. you can find all manner of uh, conspiracy theories and and concerns. And, you know, a lot of them, you know, some of them are are totally fabulous about, you know, this is a bioweapon that was designed and uh, released into the world on purpose. But some are, you know, there are some real concerns that scientists and, and very well-informed observers have around, you know, how exactly did this uh, arise? I think at the moment, you know, we don't know whether this arose directly from an animal um, we don't, or and then spilled over into humans. There is the possibility uh, always that this also, you know, was uh, somehow uh, collected, stored in a laboratory, and then accidentally found its way out. Um, I think most observers are are relatively confident that this emerged out of nature and, um, you know, went on to infect people. And I think, you know, as I found in the book doing this research. That is consistent with the emergence of coronaviruses that we've seen. Not only SARS, as I said, which emerged in 2002, that came from uh, basically a bat, um, but this other coronavirus that then emerged 10 years later in 2012 called MERS, or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which emerged, uh, which was related to bat coronaviruses, but emerged through camels and spilled over into humans in, originally in Saudi Arabia. And so you know, what I think is really important to understand and, and what I dive into in this book is what COVID-19 represents is the third in a series of pathogenic coronaviruses that have spilled over into humans in the past 20 years. 
So we're not talking about this crazy one-off virus that nobody could have predicted and suddenly has caused a, a pandemic. We're talking about a trend. This is a trend of coronaviruses from this very specific family of viruses spilling over into human beings and causing death and destruction. And, and that is a longer story. It is, uh, I think, a fascinating story and, of course, the, the basis for the book. And I think it has some real implications for uh, how we think about the future of our relationship with um, the natural world and viruses and, and how we want to make sure that we don't have a repeat of this particular pandemic. I wanted to ask you, is this nature's kitchen? It, it's there. It somehow got released. It's bouncing around, and, and nature does its thing, and, and we, we get what we, what we have. And I'm thinking how, how Delta and Omicron have, have, a, have advanced in whatever the, the next iteration is. Is it, is in some degree organic nature that we're seeing what we're seeing? Absolutely. I mean, everything, everything that is happening with this pandemic is predictable and was predicted by virologists prior to its emergence. You know, we know that as soon as a pandemic virus spreads uh, sufficiently, uh, it's going to start uh, creating new variants. And the vast, and because, you know, these are every time a virus copies itself, there's always going to be some mutations. And it's just inevitable by chance that some of those mutations are going to make the virus uh, more effective at, at transmitting itself across populations. Um, now, w what I think is, is critical here is that the coronavirus family, unfortunately, you know, we're talking about hundreds of known strains. So, you know, as I said, there's the two coronaviruses that cause common colds in humans. Mm -hmm. There's SARS-2, there's SARS-1, there's MERS, all of which, you know, can kill people. Uh, but then there are hundreds of known, very closely related coronaviruses that are found in bats. And that is just scratching the surface by some estimates. And I don't want to shock you here, but, you know, some some of the best, most renowned coronavirologists in the world estimate that there could be tens of millions of strains of coronaviruses living in wild animals, primarily bats, around the world. So you think about the amount of mixing and um, recombination that's happening as these strains are passed across animals, and you think about the amount of uh, uh, introduction of humans into these animal spaces that we're seeing as a result of deforestation and the exotic animal trade and massive, um, uh, you know, uh, global industry for meat. And it's just a matter of time before we're going to have another event where viruses spill over into human beings. Now, I know that's shocking and I know that's scary, but what I detail in the book is that uh, there are and have been scientists that have been studying this phenomenon for decades, and they, in fact, were critical in helping to advance some of the early wins to protect us from this pandemic, like vaccines, like really effective antivirals. And we are in a really, really good position now to make sure that if and when the inevitable next virus spills over into humans, that we can prevent it from transforming into a pandemic, that we can stop an outbreak before it spreads.
You touch on the, on, the, on the book, too, where you talk about the fact that this is not new, that scientists have been working on, on, on various strains for years. There is all, the, all, all the conjecture, and, 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 and depending on which rabbit hole you want to go down, about the development of the, of the, of the COVID-19 vaccines. That true, yes, they, they kind of appear to have happened overnight, but really, it sounds like they really didn't happen overnight. A lot of the groundwork has been laid for a number of years. Yeah, and look, you know, it's not by accident that every single vaccine that's out there that's effective includes the spike protein as its main component. That's because scientists had done work for decades to isolate and understand the spike protein as the critical component of the virus that it used to enter cells. So every coronavirus has a spike protein. And every coronavirus uses this spike protein to enter into cells, to break open cell walls and enter and, you know, introduce its genome. And so that, that work in understanding the spike protein and understanding the mechanics of how coronaviruses enter cells was, was done decades prior to the emergence of COVID-19. Um, but it was critical in powering the vaccine. In terms of the antivirals, this is also an incredible story that, um, you know, I I don't think a lot of people know, but I cover extensively in the book, is that the first FDA-approved antiviral, remdesivir, was designed and developed and tested in 2013 by coronavirologists who had seen the emergence of both SARS and then MERS. Mm -hmm and realized that there would inevitably be another coronavirus that was going to emerge to threaten humanity. And they needed a broad-based antiviral that wasn't effective just against one specific strain of coronaviruses, but against every single strain. And, you know, they spent, uh, in the years between, it's basically 2010 and 2020, you know, they spent years testing out remdesivir and another drug that uh, has uh, FDA emergency authorization, molnupiravir, to see whether it was effective against every known coronavirus. The idea being, well, if it's, if it's effective against every known coronavirus, it's almost certainly going to be effective against whatever new coronavirus emerges next. And you know what? They were right. And, and that prescience, that, that incredible foresight, um, that was done by, you know, basically two coronavirologists at a time when nobody cared <laughs> about coronaviruses at all uh, is, is, you know, has, has saved millions of lives. I mean, it's, it's truly incredible. Dan, as an, as an epidemiologist, from your perspective, at least with this current round based on the, on the COVID-2, are, are, you, are we, do you consider us to still be in a, in a pandemic mode or have we moved to a, more of an endemic perspective on on COVID? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a question I'm getting a lot these days, as you can imagine. You know, just because we call it something else doesn't mean that it's it's suddenly less dangerous or less infectious. Um, I think for people who are relatively healthy, who have been fully vaccinated, uh, who have access, if they do get very sick, to antiviral treatments, you know, yes, the threat of of dying is uh, is reduced, but there are a lot of endemic diseases out there. Um, you know, these are diseases that cause sort of seasonal epidemics uh, or seasonal flare-ups that are still really deadly. So malaria is one, right? Where mm-hmm. malaria is endemic in a lot of 
of the world, it doesn't mean that it's any less deadly. It doesn't mean that it's suddenly not a pandemic or, or not worthy of our attention. It's just that we recognize that it, it's flaring is going to be a little bit more predictable. So I, I don't think that, it, you know, obviously we have to find a way to live, uh, you know, and, and kind of build back our society in a way uh, that, that um, can, can ensure that we don't have major restrictions on our economy and our, and our well-being and our, and our social lives and our family lives. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have to find that balance with understanding that even if this does become an endemic seasonal kind of um, virus, that we're still taking the measures needed to, to protect ourselves. It sounds like, to, to some degree, the, um, uh, the vaccinations that, that, that many of us have, have been getting are, are going to be, if not already, out of a regular part of life, like the flu vaccine that most of us probably get every year. Is that kind of where we're moving, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, it's hard to predict, but uh, yeah, I think that's more likely than, than not. And um, I, I think the flu vaccine is a great example, right, um, where we take it seasonally. Most people don't really think about it. However, I would point out, and I think it's really important, that we, we, the controversy around taking flu vaccines is quite low. Mm-hmm. That's despite the fact that the FDA threshold for a, an effective flu vaccine is 50%, okay? So, uh, you know, 50%, that's a, that's a coin toss about whether, it's gonna, whether the flu vaccine is going to protect you. And in some years, it's actually lower than 50% because the influenza uh, vaccine is made up of a bunch of different strains that scientists predict will emerge in, in that season. We're talking... With the, with the coronavirus vaccines, with the COVID-19 vaccines, these were shown to be 95% effective. And yes, their effectiveness has come down slightly uh, in the case of, you know, when, when, uh, when um, measured against Omicron and, and Delta, but that they are still powerful, powerful technologies that are going to protect us and far more effective than the flu vaccine that we take regularly every year. So, you know, if you're looking for something that's a sure bet to protect you, um, I think the controversy around vaccines is is uh, is really really overblown. Given you know that this is one of the most effective, the 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 collection of COVID vaccines that we have are one of the most effective vaccines that we've seen in a long time. Dan, I wanted to ask in 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 doing this research and in putting this book together, is there something that just stuck out at you as a as a really blatant misconception that we as the non-scientific public have or have had about either coronavirus or specifically about the this COVID-2 variety that we've been battling for the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you two. I, I sort of touched on it beforehand. And, and the first is really that, and you said it out at the outset, that you know, all of the vaccines and the treatment sort of er- arose spontaneously within a matter of months. And that's just not the case. The, they, uh, you know, we were, humanity was provided with these tools uh, because of the work over decades of, of scientists around the world studying coronaviruses, going into caves and trapping bats, testing spike proteins in labs, trying to understand how these uh, coronaviruses function, and also very presciently 
um, working to develop cures and, and approaches that can protect our, our us. Um, and then the other thing that I think is critical is understanding that, um, you know, what we're seeing with this pandemic isn't a one-off. It is the acceleration of a trend and uh, that's seeing more and more viruses uh, interact and spill over into human beings. And, and, you know, this isn't just my opinion. We've seen more novel viruses cause uh, outbreaks and epidemics among human populations in the first two decades of the 21st century than we did across the entirety of the 20th century. So we're in a period of an acceleration of uh, sort of interactions between viruses and humans, and we need to recognize that. And I think it's super important now more than ever to you know, fund the kind of scientific work that isn't just uh, motivated by you know, profits, but can be very, very forward and sort of future facing in terms of anticipating threats that might arise. If there is a, a light at the end of the tunnel kind of, of, of takeaway from everything you've looked at and, and, and what's in the book, what, what might that be? Well, honestly, this is a hopeful book. I, I wrote this book um, to be, you know, to read like a thriller, and it is a hopeful book. It, it is, you know, it's been described as a page turner. Um, I, I wrote it to sort of profile why people, scientists, are motivated to do the work that they do. Um, and my major takeaway is that there are incredible people out there motivated for the right reasons, and sometimes for the wrong reasons, but who are working to protect us. And we just need to be aware that, um, you know, publicly uh, funded science and science that sort of takes the long view can help protect us and can help protect our species at this really, really, really critical time uh, in our relationship with nature and the natural world. Um, and, you know, it's, a, it's ultimately a story of hope that um, a small group of uh, scientists who didn't have a ton of funding, who, who certainly didn't have a lot of public support, were instrumental in the decades prior to this pandemic to protect us, and, and they did. And, and, you know, that gives me a lot of hope for the future. That's epidemiologist and writer Dan Werb. His new book is The Invisible Siege, The Rise of Coronaviruses and the Search for a Cure. For this edition of In the Author's Voice, I'm Jeff Williams.